If you have a Bible, let's turn with it. Turn, turn it to Matthew chapter 6. That's page 811 in the Black Bibles and the seats around you. We're going to read three verses from Matthew 6, verses 16, 17, and 18 as we continue studying Matthew's gospel in this section of it called the Sermon on the Mount. The teaching we're about to hear from Jesus is going to assume a worldview about the human body and the world that many of us, I would assume or guess, struggle with. I fear that this teaching will fall on deaf ears, will not be applied, and that many of you will not really get it because you do not share the same worldview that Jesus does as he's teaching it, nor the people that are first hearing it who are mostly Jewish people. As last time I checked, all of you that I've met are not Jewish in your ethnic identity, nor in your cultural and religious background. Most of you come from European descent. Not all of you, but most of you come from a more Western, European, Greco-Roman background. Therefore, your worldview and the way you think about the world is divided between human body and soul. The Jews, however, did not share that kind of view. They did not have a Greco-Roman worldview. They believed that the body, soul, mind, and spirit were one unified entity and were not divided into two parts, or what's often called dualism. The Greek and Romans taught that the soul and body were separate entities, and the soul lived inside of a body which was inferior, not important. That the real thing was the, the non-material spirit or soul that is inside of you. As a result, many people, even Christians, maybe even some of you, have struggled to see the goodness of the created world around you, and you think that real spirituality is about the inner spirit stuff and not bodily, day-to-day, everyday life, eating, drinking, marriage, sex, all of the above. I fear to some of you, when you think about matters of life and death, you have actually created more of a pagan Greco-Roman worldview about your salvation than you have a Jewish Christian worldview. The emphasis for a lot of people when they think about life and death is that when somebody dies that their spirit floats off into some sort of spirit world and that then they get to be with Jesus and that that's heaven, end of the story, no other gospel to proclaim. By the time this message is over, I'm going to hopefully show that that's not the Christian gospel. And for any of you that are thinking that all of your hope is in that your spirit would one day be in a non-material existence in some sort of spirit world with Jesus, that is anti-Christian. So I would encourage you to listen carefully and closely. I want to say things boldly and provocatively to hopefully encourage you to listen this morning. Don't accept a pagan non-Christian, heretical worldview for the way you understand Christianity. That, that would not be the way to follow the way of Jesus. By studying the issue of fasting, it will require us to think about the importance of the physical body. And your body image really matters. It opens into a window of your view of spirituality. Many of us will not apply and have not applied the teaching of Jesus and the Christian Judeo worldview of fasting because we don't see the body, soul, spirit, and mind unity that is talked about throughout the scriptures. Spirituality should include all of us, all of our being, 
the whole person. And only in light of that will fasting make sense as we then read these verses from Jesus. As one author puts it, fasting is the body talking and speaking what our spirit and soul inside of us is yearning and longing for. It is not the body talking for the spirit or soul in a symbolic way, but rather the whole person expressing themselves in a unified way. Until we embrace this unified sense of the body, it is unlikely that fasting will happen and that we will follow the teaching of Jesus. The problem is not a problem of willpower, that I'm telling you, hey, fasting's important, Jesus teaches it, let's do it. And then you just disobey. The problem is a view and an image and a worldview of the way our spirituality is disconnected from the material, physical world. With that in mind, let's read these words, study Jesus' teaching on them, and then conclude with the gospel message that makes all sense of these issues. So starting in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says the following, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So let's first understand what Jesus is saying in his teaching, and then we're going to conclude, as I promised you, to understand the full message of the gospel as it relates to our body, mind, and soul. First question, when do you fast? First question, when do you fast? Verse 16 and verse 17 assumes that followers of Jesus disciples of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus, those who say, I like Jesus and I want to live like him. If that's you, it assumes in verse 16 and 17, not if you fast, but when you fast. The expectation is that you will fast. Is that true of you? When was the last time you fasted? And it's okay if all of you in the room want to internally assess and be honest that probably 5% of us might fast on a regular basis, but that the vast majority of in this room, according to most statistics and polls, is that modern day Christians do not fast. We've maybe fasted once. We've certainly skipped meals, but it wasn't fasting. So let's make sure we understand what's fasting, what's not fasting, and are you doing it? In terms of categories, There's voluntary and involuntary, or spontaneous and planned fasts. Those would be two kind of ways to think about fasting. The involuntary or the planned fasts would be the things like in Yom Kippur each year. The Day of Atonement, one day out of the year, the people of Israel were called to have a day where they afflicted their nefesh. That's the Hebrew word that you often see translated as soul. It doesn't say fast, it says to afflict the nefesh. And what it's trying to say on the day of Yom Kippur, as we know from tradition, is that they were to fast because the nefesh, its most literal basic meaning, is your throat. So to afflict your throat is to deny it food in a very literal sense. But in a much broader sense, the word nefesh is a representative. When you talk about one part of your body, it represents the whole. 
If I say, let's do a quick head count, are we just counting heads or do we talk about the whole body? Do you get what I'm saying here? Or if I'm on a ship or an airplane, for whatever reason, people still use King James old language and say, how many souls are on aboard this craft, aircraft or the ship? Souls. They're not talking about how many non-material, you know, spirit forms are on, on, the, on the boat or on the plane. They're asking how many people. That's what nefesh means. It represents the whole person, but its most literal meaning was the throat. So to afflict the throat was to deny it food, to let it get dried up, to not feed it, and therefore not feed the whole body. So that was a planned yearly fast. During the days of Jesus, people not only did that fast, but Jewish people fasted two days a week, every week. So part of the reason why I think he assumes that disciples will fast is because there is a Jewish custom of fasting not just once a year, but every single week for two days out of the week. Now that fasting was not no food for an entire 24-hour period. 24 hours makes no sense in the ancient world. Like at some point in the middle of the night, at midnight, it turns from one day to another. That whole concept is just weird to an ancient person. When the sun goes down, that day is now over. It's so much simpler, isn't it? The sun goes up, it's a new day. So you would fast during the sun time. When the sun was up, you would not eat, so you would basically skip breakfast, skip lunch, eat a late dinner. It's very similar if you know anything about Ramadan and the way that Muslims practice fasting, is that they have late meals together for these days of Ramadan, which I believe they actually took from Christians when they practiced Lent, which is another planned time of fast. Lent is not anywhere in the Bible. It is prior to what would be called the considered Roman Catholic Church. So some of you today are like, well, I don't practice Lent. That's a Catholic thing. No, that's actually just a bunch of early Christians that weren't necessarily Roman Catholics, as you think of them today, just early Christians that wanted to prepare themselves for Easter and would spend 40 days giving up food. Many people that practice Lent today abstain from things, but they don't abstain from actual food. Like, well, I'm going to give up TV. Well, you know, that might just be growing up, you know, maturing a little bit, not fasting. I'm going to give up video games or Facebook. Like, oh, those just might be good ideas in general, not fasting, right? Fasting is giving up food for a set time, and the early practices of Lent were to give up food from morning till sundown. And you just basically wouldn't eat during your day and then eat a big meal at the end of the day. Early Christians did that, and Roman Catholics in particular in modern day are the ones that have done that again. So that's your planned fasts, like Lent, like Yom Kippur, like your two-day-a-week practices of the early Christians and the Jews during the days of Jesus. Now there's voluntary or spontaneous fasts. This, I believe, is the main teaching of Scripture on fasting in terms of how it's practiced and how you should consider practicing it. When do you fast is the question of this first point. I would suggest that if you would like to, you can do planned fasts on Lent. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sinful about it. Feel free to take up that practice. It's being commended here by Jesus, fasting, that is. But the particular form of when you do it I think is primarily focused in the scriptures on spontaneous fasts during these occasions. So I'm going to list out a few different examples of when you might want to consider fasting. Grief from sin as an act of repentance 
Fasting is often associated in conjunction with a turning of the whole body because of a spiritual disorder inside of your sinful nature. Sometimes the dualistic thing I was talking about earlier in the introduction is because we talk about the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is not the body is bad. The flesh should be defined as disordered desires. That's what Paul means by the flesh, disordered desires. And so to combat disordered desires, we can fight against sometimes appetites of our material body like fasting, and that will help us repent from our sin, repent from our disordered desires, and long more for the Spirit to fill us so our body would be filled with even better and more righteous desires. That would be one occasion to fast. And maybe to put a little footnote to the end of that particular occasion, I would say if some of you have had habitual physical sins, maybe lustful desires or eating disorders, we'll talk about that in a second, but different physical issues, one of the things you might want to consider in terms of fighting that sin in repentance is to fast. Another reason or occasion for fasting, when you might fast, A voluntary thing is when you experience great sorrow and suffering, especially the death of a loved one. Did you know that the earliest practices of how to grieve was not to feed people? And this is often the way, if you've been around people who have been grieving, they say, oh, let let me feed you something or let me provide you meals. And if you've ever been in those experiences of deep grief, there's a lot of times you just don't have that appetite if you've experienced that. You say, I don't want to eat. So as a word of encouragement for all of you, if somebody is in that place and they're really experiencing deep grief and sorrow, sometimes it might be wise to not keep pushing food on them, just as a practical thing. Let them grieve by not eating, especially if they're a Christian and they're wanting to actually practice what's called Christian fasting, where in that moment of grief, their body is responding in a way where the whole body, mind, soul, and spirit are grieving. And I think this is one of the reasons why, maybe emotionally speaking, people who have a dichotomy between the spirit and the body are having a hard time of figuring out how to grieve. What's the appropriate expression? Well, throughout the history of the church, fasting has been one appropriate expression of grief. Another occasion for when you might fast is to identify with others who are suffering even if you yourself are not. This was the reason why I had Paul come up here earlier in the service and he read Isaiah chapter 58. One of the key Old Testament passages on fasting was that we would identify ourselves with the poor and the afflicted. And a very common way that Christians, especially Judeo-Christians, people in that vein of line of thought, have fasted is by giving up their food, sometimes even taking the food that they would have eaten and then giving it to somebody who can't eat or taking the money that they would have spent on that food and donating it to those that are hungry and need food. Then the body is saying, I'm hungry, but then now you're identifying and putting yourself in solidarity with these people who are struggling and hurting and saying, I, I don't know all what it feels like, but I want to I be there with you in this moment, and I want to know your, your, your pains, the pains of hunger. And so there is a a sense of social justice, you could say, a sense of reaching out to the the poor and the needy through fasting in a very practical and tangible way. These are a few of the examples that we find in the Bible for when people fast spontaneously. That's not something that you typically plan. You can't just determine when you're going to come across 
uh, an instance of your heart just sinking because of the pain and suffering that somebody else goes through, that it almost makes you like, I just can't even eat right now knowing that you're suffering this way. In the same way you don't know when someone might die and you experience grief, or when the Spirit of God will convict you deeply over the way that you have sinned against somebody. And so I would suggest for all of you to start considering that when those moments do come up, that you would start learning about, if you've not learned about, or applying what you have learned about fasting in these instances, when you fast. These are some of the occasions when that might happen. So now, second, let's look at Jesus' teaching. And it's the main point he's really doing here is, how should we fast? These are the occasions where we might fast. Jesus assumes we will. I encourage you to fast on certain occasions, especially these voluntary and spontaneous moments. But how should you do it when you do? And the key idea that Jesus says here, we've already covered it in the other sections, is to not make a big show about it, to not be seen by others. If you wanted to just summarize the key idea, it's don't do it to be seen. Don't do it for praise. Don't do it so other people get impressed by you. Oh, wow. You fasted. You're really spiritual. You're, you're a real super Christian. If you have any desire in your heart to impress people with your spirituality, one way you could easily do that in a world full of Christians who don't fast is to start fasting. I'm not just fasting for a day. I'm doing a whole week. I'm going to not eat at all. And then make a big deal about it every time somebody says, let's eat. No, I'm fasting. Look at me. That kind of spirit is in all of us. Let's be honest. There's an, a, a, a people-pleasing praise of men desire from all of us, and Jesus is attacking it at its core and saying, when you fast, don't do that. Just If somebody asks you, hey, let's go out to eat, just say, hey, I'm, I'm fasting right now, no thanks. Or I'll go out to eat and I'll just have a cup of water or something. You don't have to make a big deal about it. You don't have to tell everybody how hungry you are. Yes, I'm so hungry. Let me go on and on about all the foods I've given up and all of the terrible feelings I have when I watch you eat. Oh, that looks so good. Hopefully you get the idea. Jesus gives you, I think, just a poetic expression. Uh, Some have looked into this more than others, but they put oil on your head and wash your face. My translation, the Phil translation of the Greek here, or just the English, look normal, act normal. You don't have to make a big deal about it. You know, there's going to be occasions where you are going to fast in the voluntary, in the, uh, voluntary spontaneous way because you're already grieving. You don't have to double down on that grief. You can just grieve normally. This phrase about washing your face and putting on your oil, some have said that it's a Jewish custom for when you're celebrating, if it's you should be like really happy that you're fasting. I think that's taking it too far. It's probably just talking about normal hygiene. Like, don't disfigure your face. Just be like, God, I'm fasting. I'm just so hungry. Just don't act like that. Don't draw more attention to yourself than you would need to. It's hypocritical then when you start fasting that way to get a praise and approval from other people. I think there is an honest question, though, about this teaching from Jesus. Because if we read the earlier sections, he told us to not pray in such a way that we would be an actor or actress. And he uses the word hypocrite, which is the everyday word for an actor that's in a play or a theatrical performance. And so some have suggested that what Jesus is saying here is to act like a different way than they really are. If you're truly hungry and you're grieving, you shouldn't put on oil and wash your face to go out and act like everything is okay. I don't think that's his point. 
I think it's a fair question, though. The emphasis seems not to be on not fasting in public and that you should never be in front of people and that if you're fasting and grieving that you shut yourself in your door and you never let anybody see you. The obvious point should be don't go about your fasting so it's obvious to others where you're getting extra attention. Grief is fine. Gloom is fine. Sullenness is fine, especially on those occasions when you're fasting for those reasons. But displaying them in order for people to think that you're so spiritual, well, that's obviously wicked. And you're not really even fasting the way Jesus and God would want. So don't do with your physical appearance anything extra or in your conversations. That's how we should fast. Let's quickly move now on to our third question, one of probably the more important ones. Why should we fast? We've considered when we should fast, certain occasions, and that many of us probably should think about doing it more on those occasions. We've considered what Jesus has to say about how we should do it, but I do think he gives us an insight into why we should fast. And before we get to Jesus' answer, I want to explain that the common way Christians fast is what's called the instrumental view, if you want to put it that way. In other words, fasting for a lot of modern-day Christians is to gain some practical benefit. Well, what am I going to get out of it? That's why I want to do it. In other words, fast because I want to be some deep spiritual experience with God, and that if I go fast, then I'm going to feel like Moses on the mountain, and I'm going to, my face is going to shine and glow, and I'm going to start having these trance-like experiences with God. Other people want to do a fast because they want to improve their health. And there's a lot of modern-day health diet guru people talking about certain fasts or whatever for health reasons. Some people fast because they believe that there's a better chance that God will answer my prayers. So I'm praying. Well, what if I pray and fast? You know, Jesus said at one point, some demons won't come out and be exercised unless there's prayer and fasting. So that's the, that's the key. That's why he's not been answering your prayers. You've not been fasting. And this is the way many people view fasting as somehow the little secret key to get the very thing that you've been wanting for. But think about that for a moment. Do you think Jesus fasted before his public ministry for 40 days in the wilderness because he was hoping to lose some few pounds? He knew he'd be getting a lot of attention, doing miracles, be some big crowds, preaching these amazing sermons and be like, you know, I need to really work on that body image. I really struggle to think that Jesus was fasting to do some sort of detox cleanse. But this is the way we think about fasting. And it seems to be this is one of the more commonly held views by Christians. So again, if you're struggling with body image issues, eating disorders, you should probably not engage in fasting right now until you can get these issues thought through more clearly, more accurately, more biblically. I heard a woman this week talking about her own fasting experience, and she did not confess to have some sort of eating disorder, but just a godly woman that loved Jesus and said that she has never been able to fast without first being tempted to think about its dietary effects and weight loss possibilities. So I'm I'm understanding ladies in the room in particular who are dealing with the onslaught of what the world has to say about your body image, Men in the room who also struggle with these issues of whether or not you're looking a certain way to the world around you, this is not the reason to fast. We should not be fasting because it makes us look great before the world's eyes. Isn't that the exact opposite of Jesus' teaching? 
so we get praise and approval from men because we have six-pack abs because of our detox cleanse and our skin is now cleaner. Jesus wants to reorient our minds and our motives for why we fast in this teaching, and he gives us clues about that. I think many people, like I've tried to allude to, confuse fasting with abstinence. And so you can abstain from certain things, but that's, that's not fasting. That's not how we've tried to define fasting. Fasting is abstaining from food or water for a certain period of time. It's not always just food or water. Um, sometimes there can be just water, all of food and water. There's a variety of ways in that regard. But that's the basic idea. No food or no water or maybe both. You see, the basic idea is that we need food to survive, and the Bible only talks about fasting in terms of not eating, not these other kinds of fasts or abstaining from, like we mentioned, social media or TV or video games or movies or certain relationships. I'm going to fast from having a boyfriend. It's like, well, that's convenient, right? As Scott McKnight says in his book on fasting, it's an excellent book. You can just look up Scott McKnight Fasting if you want to read more on this and study it and think about it. He says, instrumental fasting, which is the idea I want to get something out of it, is all but impossible to find in the pages of the Bible. It's rarely reflected in ancient Judaism or in the rabbis of Jesus' day. Instead, the instrumental view of fasting undermines the biblical view, the genius of the Bible is its focus is on the whole body's response to a sacred, grievous event like death, the threats of war, sin in our lives, the neediness we feel, or a fear of God's judgment, end quote. So in other words, if you take what Scott McKnight's saying, biblical fasts begin, why don't you catch this phrase, as a response to a sacred moment And the key is not for your fasting to determine the outcome of the event because, oh, I'm fasting now and that's going to answer my prayer or give me some sort of physical benefit like dietary issues. We do not fast in order to change God's mind or manipulate him or act like we can now have some sort of control over the chaos in our lives. You know, God does not hear you better when you're fasting. Last week's teaching on prayer complements this. We talked about last week when Jesus was telling us how to pray. He says, before I even tell you how to pray, let me lay the foundation here. I am your Father, and I know your needs before you need them. Do not go on babbling, thinking your many loud words will make me hear you any more than just a a short, simple prayer. It's the same way with fasting. Before you fast, you need to know that Jesus is not going to listen to your prayers all the more because he's so impressed. Oh, wow, you're really committed now. Let me now give you what you've been wanting. He knows your needs before you ask them. Whether you fast or not, God is going to righteously and sovereignly do things through our prayers and through our fasting that he has ordained. So we don't manipulate God to try and start caring for our needs. He knows our needs. Say, for example, when something like death or sin or some sort of grievous thing happens, you really blow it and you just feel sick to your stomach. Events in the world that are so terrible that you just can't even think about eating for a few days. When these things happen, when these things and these situations happen, it it is chaotic, is it not? 
Like it's as if the whole world around you pauses and all that really matters is that moment. And whatever that issue is, feeling some sense of control again or some sense of hope in the midst of the darkness. And so fasting is not about giving you a sense of control to determine how this outcome is going to be. So that you can somehow feel this sense of, I can't control all that just happened now. There's all this kind of terrible chaos going around. Well, I'll fast, and, and that will then give the answer that I've been longing for with this particular situation. So then why should we fast? Jesus says, do it for the reward of the Father. Fasting becomes a Christian and biblical practice when we respond to these situations and become in tune with God and who he is, and that in and of itself is our reward. You will not be in control in these tense times, but you will need to know more than ever the God who is in control and be in close communion with him through the practice of fasting. If you have really blown it in your life, and really hurt someone, and you just felt terrible about it, and thought, I should fast, I feel sick. You need to, need, need to know more than ever the Father who provides forgiveness through his Son, Jesus. Fast for the reward of the Father, of knowing him, knowing his grace and his forgiveness for those who are repentant. Not that the forgiveness is being dangled out, that if you fast, oh, then you get the forgiveness but for the reward of knowing the Father who has already forgiven you in Christ. In short, if I could kind of sum it up in a short saying, we fast as a response, not for a response. We fast as a response to the things going on around us to commune for the reward of the Father, not as a response of some sort of extra benefit in addition to that. The good news, though, is that many times God then does bless us far beyond just the reward of that experience of communion and worship with the Father. And so we get many times in the face of death the hope of life and resurrection. We get much more than just knowing about God's fatherly forgiveness, we get reconciliation with other people as we get in line with God's ways and we fast and we pray and we then start living in light of the way Jesus would have us and then we start restoring our relationships and that maybe even the very things that we destroyed through prayer and fasting, one outcome, sometimes he rewards us with above and beyond what we ever asked or imagined. But that's not why we fast, not for that response. It's not some sort of you know, machine where you pull levers and say, okay, prayer, fasting, 10 days, okay, that'll do it. That's not how this works. We fast for the reward of the Father, as Jesus says. So let's bring this all together. I introduced this teaching by saying this is going to be hard for some of you to do because you don't have a holistic worldview about your body. Many of us have, because of our background and our baggage from pagan, heretical worldview and teaching, not Jewish Christian teaching, unbiblical teaching, we think that there's this soul or spirit inside of us, and when we die, it floats up to be with Jesus, and that's all that the Christian gospel is. Well, let's re remind ourselves, what, what is the true Christian gospel message, and how does that message show that the whole person, the whole body, is involved, and therefore 
it is quite appropriate for the whole body to be involved in worship in fasting. Well, the, the Christian gospel message begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with a world that's created, a material world where human bodies are made, male and female, and God declares them very good. When sin enters the world, it does disorder our desires, and it does corrupt and decay some of the wonderful good things of this world. But it does not mean that the whole thing should be seen in such negative light. In fact, one of the great reasons you should be confident that the world as it stands right now, the material world is still good, is that Jesus did not come down in spirit form, did he? He was born as a virgin through the birth of the Holy Spirit and became a man. The incarnation is the first loud declaration against Greco-Roman worldview. It is not about the spirit form and us ascending up to it. It is about the descent of the spirit of God into the form of a human and Jesus Christ being the image of the visible, being the image of the invisible God visible here on earth. So he came down into bodily material form and redeemed and rescued the world through his life. His life that included a 40-day fast before his ministry of preaching and teaching and miracles. Notice Jesus' miracles. Does he go to people and say, all you need is a few, few words about how you can just pray a prayer and then be float up into heaven and live in spirit form for the rest of your existence? I don't care about you being sick or in pain or hurting. I don't care about your diseases and afflictions. Is that the Jesus that you read about? Or is it the Jesus that you read about right before the Sermon on the Mount and the very people he's talking to were these kind of people? Paralytic, diseased, afflicted by many different physical infirmities. And what does he do? He heals them. The very message and life of Jesus is one to bring healing and restoration to the broken physical world. And so all through Jesus' life, you should see this tension between these ideas. Sure, we do not live by bread alone. Jesus says his food that he eats is to do the will of the Father. There's something more than the physical body, but not, but not less. There is something more. We are body, mind, soul, and spirit as one unified being. Remember that Jesus ate and drank with his disciples, so much so that people thought, this man's a drunkard. He's a glutton. Not because he probably acted as a glutton or a drunkard. It's because he wasn't fasting like the Jews did in his day. Fasting two times a week. And you heard Sam read that scripture passage from Mark 2. And he says, if you're at a wedding, do you fast? Is that the right occasion to respond to fasting when you're at a wedding banquet? No, the answer is. <laughs> That's the point of Jesus' teaching, is to say when you're at a big party, the right thing to do is not respond with grief and mourning, oh no, I can't believe you married him, but celebrate the two and join with them in the celebration by eating and drinking and celebrating. And that's what Jesus says. When he comes onto the earth, it is that the bridegroom, the, the husband has come for his wife, and, and Jesus has done that through his incarnation, through coming down as fully God and fully man. 
It was a time to celebrate with food and drink. He feasted with his disciples. He feasted all the way to the point of his death when right before he died, he gave them bread and wine as reminders of his body and blood. So as we do every week, take the the bread and the cup. Do not look at those elements as merely symbolic, but notice that they're tangible. We don't just pass around or pretend Jesus. And so there's this divide here where I'm afraid that sometimes there's the Roman Catholic teaching which says that the body and blood of Jesus is the actual blood, like you're eating flesh, and then you're drinking blood, the actual blood of Jesus. Our church does not support that teaching. That's called transubstantiation. It, it gets transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus. I think that is a bad teaching. On the other side, people say that it's just symbolic of his body and blood, and it is symbolic, but it is material. And it's to tell you that his body was material. He came down to redeem and restore the, the material world. So as, as you feel the delicious crackers that we have and the wonderful grape juice that we drink, feel it. Think about it. It is a representation. It's not, it's not the real Jesus. It's not even real wine. It's juice. That's not the point. The point is that I want you to connect that there is a sense of Jesus coming down and living the life of humans to identify us with him. And every time you take that cracker and you drink that juice, it should tell you that Jesus really has body and blood. And there is a heart that is beating. And that heart is beating for a great love for you and for me. And we know that because he showed his love by dying on a cross And it was by his wounds, as it was read earlier in the service from Isaiah 53, by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, the physical, material, bodily world, the immaterial, spirit, form of all that brings who we are. It's it's not just one or the other. It's the whole thing Jesus came to redeem and restore. And that's why three days later, Jesus rose Again, in what form? Many liberal theologians, churches that go around and say they are Christian churches, say that Jesus did not rise bodily, that that was just people being crazy and being hypnotized or or having some sort of vision or experience like that. Jesus did bodily raise and had hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses see and touch and watch him eat fish and live like a human being on this earth. After he died, he conquered death. And so the resurrection hope that you have is bodily hope, material world, mind, body, soul, and spirit, all wrapped up in that human form. This is good news for us that Jesus did not just rise again from the dead bodily, but that 40 days later he ascended to the heavens. And as many of you already know, this is one of the main things I'm working on doing extra education for to study the significance of Jesus' ascension. And if I were to put it into a short explanation, I'd say this. You can know with certainty that the Greco-Roman worldview, this idea that you have a spirit or soul inside of you and that salvation is just about your soul escaping from this bad, corrupt, material world and going into the heavens is not the true gospel. You can know that with certainty because Jesus in bodily form broke through and ascended into that heavenly form. 
So as Jesus exists as Lord in heaven and earth right now, he does not exist in spirit form. He exists in bodily form. Your Lord that you pray to and worship to, your representative to God the Father in heaven is a person. That's who we call our Lord and Master and King. You have connection with him because he has connection with you. He did not just come down, he went up. Up from the grave and up to the heavens. Friends, this message of the gospel is why fasting can make sense. That Jesus, through his works, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection and ascension, Jesus is restoring and redeeming and healing the material, physical world. Therefore, all of you should submit and repent and obey, and all of you should worship God in mind, body, soul, and spirit. Don't think when you come to church, it's just this spiritual thing you're doing on the internal, non-material way. There's a reason why it's important to practice things like prayer in a physical posture. When you pray, we teach, close your hands or or bow your head, close your eyes, not be distracted from anything else. There's a reason why people stand or sit or prostrate themselves in worship, because worship is a complete bodily spiritual experience. There's a reason why Romans chapter 12 says your spiritual act of worship is the whole renewing of the mind and giving of yourself with everything you do all day long. This is why moms who are changing diapers, this is why you working on a computer from nine to five and whatever your techie kind of computer job are, and you think, oh, this has nothing to do with spiritual things. That is a lie. That is a spiritual act of worship where you're contributing to the general world around you, to the company you work for, the boss that you serve, and the people that you provide goods and services to. We're to be people that are using our bodies for the sake of the worship of God in all that we do at every point of every day. And that, my friends, is why fasting in that worldview can make sense. So let us respond now as we sing this next song, as we take the bread and the cup, and as we remind ourselves that Jesus rescues and redeems the whole world, our whole being, so that we can do things like fast and pray and sing songs, and lift our hands, and put our hands in our pockets, or shout loud with voices. Use all of us for worship to the Lord. Let's pray together.